Giannis, 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh my goodness. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you. Brendan, voice yeah. crack. Woo. Just came back from my first uh, extended weekend of the offseason. Colonial Williamsburg, you ever been? Oh, let's hear all about it. You've never been? No. Oh, never well, have. Excellent. Sounds colonial. It is. Uh, Bush Gardens, great time. Give it two thumbs up. Yeah. Didn't go on any rides. Are you a roller coaster guy? Yeah. I mean, I feel like if you go to an amusement park and don't go on any roller coasters, I mean, why, why'd you go? I've only been on one roller coaster in my entire life. Really? It, uh, yeah. And it was like a baby roller coaster. Not a baby, but it was like an easy starter. A roller coaster for babies. It was not for babies. I want to make that clear. Uh, it, was, yeah. that's, it sounds like you might have been on a roller okay. coaster for babies, I, Paul. I meant baby as in it was a beginner's roller coaster. For babies. Not for... <laughs> Uh, that seems like a hype issue. They have to meet a certain requirement there. Don't put yourself down like that. Um, uh, I did not go on a baby roller coaster. I didn't go on any roller coasters in Bush Gardens, Brendan. So if you've only been on one roller coaster in your life, mm -hmm. was it so bad that you just decided, I'm done with this forever? No, I just, it was like, wow, I'm never doing that again because... That's literally what I just said. Yeah, but I didn't say it was terrible. It was, it was fun. But, uh, you know, I just... Uh, I can't do that. So you went, that was enjoyable. Never again. Yes. You know, you have those experiences. No, <laughs> I don't think you do. I think, well, look, I think you could, uh, you could say like bungee jumping. Like if some, I've never been bungee jumping. But that's bungee jumping. But I can that's imagine. An incredibly specific and probably expensive thing. Whereas roller coasters much more easily accessible. Yeah. But yeah. How often are you going to theme parks as, in a, as a grown adult without children? Maybe once a year. <laughs> that's more often than I would go bungee jumping that's fair. You'd go once in your entire life, but you'd do it, and then you'd say, never again. We're really getting... I'm just confused as to why you went on one roller coaster, seemingly yeah. enjoyed it, yeah, and then decided to just write it off forever. Well, this one, this was a particular instance. It was cold. You know, if it were... The, you're going around, you're up, up very high, the wind is whipping. I didn't want to be that freezing in Bush Gardens, so. So it was less of a, I've written off roller coasters and more of a, I don't want to be chilly. I didn't feel it. I wasn't feeling it. Didn't want to be chilly. Didn't want to be chilly. Sure. That's, I think that's entirely fair. That's fair. Okay. Um, well, holy roster moves, Brendan. We have so much to discuss. Second <laughs> old-timey Batman-related reference. There we go. It's a throwback, if you will. Yeah. Uh, since our last podcast, since our last confession, Jordan Lyles had his option declined. We did a show about that on... Mass and Orioles and Mass and All Access, but we haven't had a chance to talk about it on the podcast, so we shall. We're also going to talk about the additions the Orioles made to their 40-man roster, protecting five players from the Rule 5 draft. We have a free agency bracket update as well to get to, and Friday is the non-tender deadline, so we're going to preview that. This could be a four-hour episode. Strap in. Yeah. It's going to be fun. Music and to by Amy fun, I mean, it's going to be a lot of stuff. Yeah, we're going to run through it as, as quickly as we can here, Brendan. Let's start by talking about Jordan Lyles, because that happened short and shortly after we did our podcast. Uh, believe the same day. The deadline was last Thursday. The Orioles made their decision a day early. It was an $11 million option for 2023 for Jordan Lyles. 
containing a $1 million buyout. And the Orioles choose to move on, at least for now, but keeping the door open for a potential return. Yeah, when we talked about this option on the podcast a few weeks ago, I laid out my case for not bringing Jordan Lyles back on this $11 million option. I don't think he's going to command quite that much money in free agency. So now by declining that option, you have opened yourself up to a few options if you're Michael Elias and the Orioles. The first one being, if you still want to bring bring Jordan Lyles back, you liked what he gave you a season ago in terms of just eating it, eating innings. He was, he was not the best ERA-wise. He was. Nom, nom, nom. He wasn't the best ERA-wise, but is a solid number four, number five starter. If you want to bring that back for less than $11 million, you can do so. Or you can take that $11 million and put it towards maybe a little bit of a bigger contract going towards a starting pitcher of a little bit higher caliber, say a $15, $20 million a year sort of deal. And now you're saving that $11 million that you wouldn't have spent on Jordan Lyles putting it towards somebody else. Yeah, and in theory, they could just decide to bring back Jordan Lyles around that $11 million. I think that he's worth roughly that, maybe a few million a year less than 11 mil. They're already paying him one mil for the buyout. So they could still bring him back, and obviously he's expressed interest in returning as well because he enjoyed his experience here. He liked being that veteran leader. But making a commitment to him now just felt like it wasn't really necessary. It was, you know, what he brings to the table is still valuable, and I think it's still valuable for the Orioles, but what it what he brings in 2023 is probably less valuable than what he brought in 2022. It would have been a very safe play. It yeah. would have been a kind of high floor, low ceiling move yeah. to bring back Jordan Lyles. And I think as of right now, Michael Elias and company are hoping that this team is going to be a playoff contender, so you can't really afford to make a move that doesn't have a very high ceiling. Exactly. Uh, a couple other housekeeping things that we should get to, Brendan. Adley Rutschman came up just short for uh, AL Rookie of the Year. Got one first place vote compared to Julio Rodriguez's 29. We talked about on our last podcast why it seemed like a fait accompli that Julio Rodriguez would win the AL Rookie of the Year. Brandon Hyde made it a little bit closer with the AL Manager of the Year, came in second to Terry Francona. Yeah, Adley Rutschman finishing in second for Rookie of the Year, not very surprising. We both assumed that Julio Rodriguez would kind of run away with the award. I made the case throughout the year that Brandon Hyde should be the AL Manager of the Year winner. I still think he should have been the AL Manager of the Year winner. Brought a team from 110 losses to the brink of the playoffs. I understand that Terry Francona led the youngest team in baseball to the playoffs. They were also probably in the easiest division in the American League. Their level of competition was not as high as the Orioles were facing day in and day out, facing the AL East as often as they had to. I think the Orioles did more with less. I think it was more impressive given the level of competition that they had to face. I think Hyde, I wouldn't call it a snub because Terry Francona is still very deserving, but I think Brandon Hyde, if I were to vote, would have gotten my vote. It's just very difficult to give manager of the year to a manager of a team that did not make the playoffs. Right. It, it's hard to swallow, which, you know, it's sort of like giving MVP to a player on a team that finished under 500, but it's doable. I mean, we've seen it with Shohei Otani. We've seen it with Mike Trout a lot as of late, but this one... I think manager of the year is much more tied to win-loss than an individual player's performance. So 
you know, it is the ultimate rubric for how you judge a manager. And yes, the Orioles took massive strides in just about every category. Their young players got better. You know, their rookies came up and were performing incredibly well. And their win percentage took a massive leap, losing 110 games last year. And then they finished four games above 500 this year. But it, I do understand how for from a voter's perspective, it's difficult to say Brandon Hyde was a better manager this year than Terry Francona, who took his team to the postseason. I get it. And I mean, Terry Francona going to be a Hall of Famer. He's a fantastic manager. This is his third manager of the year award. I just think given the fact that the Orioles didn't add a ton of talent this year, obviously Adley Rutschman comes up and you have production there and from some other improving players across the board, you didn't add a ton of talent. And this yeah. team still went from 110 losses to the brink of the playoffs. Yeah. And I think that had a lot to do with Brandon Hyde. So again, I still would have voted for Hyde if I had a vote. But win or loss, I think the takeaway here is that Brandon Hyde has established himself as the guy to lead a good Orioles team. Yeah. I think that was the question mark over the last few seasons was, yes, Brandon Hyde can lean a team in a rebuilding phase, but what is he going to look like when he's got talent to work with on this roster? We saw him with some good talent to work with last year, and it almost got them to the playoffs. So yeah. he's the guy. So for both Brandon Hyde and Adley Rutschman, they don't take home the hardware, but you couldn't feel any better after this season about where this organization is headed with those two at the helm, with Adley as your leader on the field and with Brandon as your leader in the dugout. A couple other housekeeping notes to get to. A lot of guys leaving the organization via free agency, uh, one being Johnny Reiser, who chose to retire. 2019 seventh-round pick. Congratulations to Johnny on a career he revealed on his Instagram uh, that he was dealing with a lot of back issues, and that ultimately hampered him a lot in 2022. So he calls it a career after reaching AAA, and certainly well-deserved uh, retirement for Johnny Reiser. A lot of guys leaving the organization via free agency and could be in other organizations later this winter. Interesting names, Brandon. DJ Stewart, yep. who started the year with the big league team and then eventually was down in AAA for the vast majority of the season. Got some time at first base. Never got to see him back up in the big leagues at any position. Jacob Nottingham, Brett Cumberland, Brendan Hanafy, who was a former top 30 prospect. Rico Garcia, who of course pitched out of the bullpen. Lewis Head. And then two big names. Yusniel Diaz and Alexander Wells both hit free agency. Yusniel Diaz, what a fall from the number one prospect in the Orioles organization, the major centerpiece of the Manny Machado trade back in July of 2018, and he could be finding a new home this winter. Yeah, now four of the five pieces acquired in that Manny Machado trade are now not in the organization, assuming Yusniel Diaz does not re-sign a minor league deal with Baltimore. Just disappointing. I don't think there are a ton of questions about... Yusniel Diaz's ceiling, we know what his ceiling is. It was always this hyper-athletic five-tool prospect, but he just couldn't stay healthy, and he couldn't put it together. He got one at-bat in the majors this year in his age 25 season, but he didn't even really play well at AAA Norfolk. I mean, he pretty much just got called up because it was like, well, it's kind of now or never for Yusniel Diaz, and it turned out to just kind of be never. And he got one at-bat, and he struck out unfortunately. Right. And it just felt like he was on the brink of being a big leaguer and being an impact big leaguer for so long. And it was just injury after injury. And then he would come back and have sustained poor play. 
and you just couldn't justify him taking a leap. And Mike Elias said as much at the end of the season. He said it wasn't a step forward in just about any category for Yusniel Diaz this year. And he was given opportunity after opportunity. It would have been a whole lot easier if we had gotten to see him on the field, if he had been healthy to stomach this. But the fact that we never really got to see it, it feels not exactly, but a little bit like when the Orioles uh, designated Hunter Harvey for assignment a year ago. And we were surprised by that. Former first-round pick, of course, by the previous regime, but had flash potential, much more potential at the big leagues than Yusniel Diaz did. But it was injuries that were hampering Hunter Harvey's career, and this feels somewhat similar. And Diaz was just never able to put it all together. A a theoretical five-tool prospect. I mean, he really had the arm. He had the speed. He had theoretical glove upside in the outfield. He had power. He was a physically imposing guy. He was strong. He could hit for contact, and he just couldn't put it all together. Yeah, I think the writing had kind of been on the wall for years now for Yusniel Diaz. Once we started seeing prospects like Ryan McKenna come up to the bigs before Diaz, he was just getting leapfrogged by guys that he shouldn't have been getting leapfrogged by. And you said it. It seemed like he was on the doorstep for such a long time. And you just needed even a few-week stretch of, wow, Yusniel Diaz is on fire at AAA Norfolk. Maybe this is the time that you call him up during a hot stretch. He's finally healthy for a little while. Let's get him to the bigs for a few weeks, see what he can do. Just never happened. Yeah, and Alexander Wells, another guy who was a former top 30 prospect, former top 15 prospect at one point, and struggled a lot with injuries this year. It had never really been an issue for him throughout his career until 2022. And the problem was you looked at his numbers in the bigs and in Norfolk last year, and it just wasn't enough to keep him in the organization when they wanted to protect five prospects and go into this winter with a few open spots on their 40-mans to leave open for free agents. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because maybe if he stays healthy this year, he carves out a role as a long reliever. He's probably not a starter on a big league roster, but maybe he's a long relief swingman type of pitcher, and then obviously he gets injured early on in the season, out for the year, goes on the injured list, and we don't see him again. He's now entering his age 26 season. I don't know what his role on this team would have been because it doesn't really seem like he has a spot in the starting rotation at all. And I don't know if he really put up the numbers that would justify keeping him as a long-relief swingman type when you've got Keegan Aiken and Austin Voth and Spencer Watkins, who would all have better cases than Alexander Wells, to be in that role in the majors. So, again, I think it was just a case where there just wasn't really a spot for Alexander Wells. Yeah, he had a 6.75 ERA in 2021 in 11 games, three out of the bullpen, and then he only appeared in three and two-thirds innings this year with a 4.91 ERA. Did not have overpowering stuff by any means. His stuff was below average. Crafty lefty. Crafty lefty, and he needed pinpoint control, and he never really showed it, unfortunately, in the big leagues. So he, again, all these guys could decide to return to the Orioles, and the Orioles could re-sign them on minor league deals. However, they are out of the organization as of now. Players the Orioles could add via big league free agency, Brendan, are free agency bracket, which you may have heard or watched a couple episodes ago on the Mass and All Access podcast, took a major hit yesterday with the loss of Jock Peterson to the qualifying offer. <sighs> that was such a bummer. <laughs> it was a toss-up on whether or not Jock Peterson would take that qualifying offer because it was either 
hey, here's 19 million for one year. 19.65. 19.65, which is that more than he would have gotten. really changes things. Uh, on Twitter, some people making fun of me in my mentions pointed out that that 19.65 million was more than he would have gotten in average annual value had he signed a two or three year deal. Yeah. Which is true. But he wasn't going to get 60 million for three years. I was kind of assuming that he would get like 45 million for three years, which is obviously less than 20 million a year, but it gives you some more long term stability. So with this play, Jock Peterson kind of betting on himself, taking a one year deal with a higher annual value. And then probably after that, we'll look to sign more of a long-term deal. Also, if he had declined the qualifying offer, then his free agency status would have come attached to a draft pick. So if the Orioles signed him after he declined the qualifying offer, they would have had to surrender a second-round pick. So that would have made it even more difficult to sign him. I was not surprised that the Giants decided to attach a qualifying offer to him, but that is a lot to commit for one year to a player that a year ago signed for one year, six million. Yeah. 20 million is a lot of money for Jock Peterson. I liked Jock Peterson a lot. I don't think I would have given him any more than 15, 16 million a year. And even that's probably pushing it a little bit. Yeah. And I think he just looked at the fact that he was getting a $13 million raise from the year before and said, I can't pass this up. And, And if he has a similar year to the one that he had, in 2022, then he could very well you know, look to get a three- or four-year deal with sure. a little bit more average annual value. But I think teams were looking for a little bit more consistency before they were going to hand him something that was you know, that high AAV for several years. Right. So he reached our finals, Brendan. Thank goodness we had Jamison Tyone beating him out. Yeah. But uh, there goes one of our finalists. And yep. also, uh, we made a little boo-boo, little mistake. We did. little goof. Joey Wendell, not a free agent. The internet was so confused about Joey Wendell. And essentially his player, excuse me, the team option for this season did not completely cover all of his years of arbitration eligibility. So even by declining his team option, Joey Wendell is still arbitration eligible. Now, I will say, not to name names, I did take Joey Wendell's name from a reputable source that said he was a free agent. He was not. Slightly frustrating. Whatever. Moving past it. (laughs) There's still a chance that Joey Wendell gets non-tendered at Friday's deadline. We'll see. But Joey Wendell, not technically a free agent at the moment. Under contract. So if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, which you should be every Wednesday at 11 a.m., you see his name smudged out. But we can take out that smudge if we need to, Brendan. But right now, we just lost two members of our Final Four the free agency bracket. We do still have Kirk Casale and we still do have Jamison Tyone. But as of right now, the entire right side of our bracket, I mean, bracket busted. I will say, though, it is pretty possible that the Marlins non-tender Joey Wendell, considering his yeah. team option was only, what, six, six and a half million dollars. And so. I don't think he's going to make that much less than that in arbitration. So it is entirely possible that he is non-tendered and we unsmudge the smudge. Sure. Besmudge. Besmudge. Besmirch. That's it. What a great word besmirch is. Sure. It right. doesn't, it's not applicable, but we're using it. We're using it anyway. Brendan, next up. 
<laughs> Let's talk about man. We are cruising. We are flying through here because yeah. I think this is the meatiest of all our our conversations it here is. today. If Jordan Lyles had this on his plate, he would dine in with a fork and knife. <laughs> and that is the five players that the Orioles protected before yesterday's deadline. So this means that these five prospects are now on the 40-man roster and they cannot be taken by other teams in the Rule 5 draft, which will happen in a couple weeks in San Diego during the winter meetings. Last year, the Orioles protected six guys. They left open a couple spots. They were poised to make one, perhaps two picks in the Rule 5 draft. We're not going to talk yet about who they might take because we're still sorting through all the guys that were left unprotected. And reminder that the Orioles don't have the number one overall pick. So they have a bunch of teams picking in front of them in the Rule 5 draft. It's going to be difficult to try to predict who they will take, if anybody. But yesterday, they add five guys. They leave open one spot as of right now. They can still open up another roster spot via outriding a guy. But they have 39 on their 40-man roster, and they protected five prospects. That they did. Let's dive in. First prospect they protected, Grayson Rodriguez. Shocking. He's... Probably the best pitching prospect in all of baseball. The number two prospect in the organization. And you're adding him to the 40-man roster at a time when he is probably going to make an immediate impact at the big league level. So you would have had to have him on your 40-man roster anyway if he's in your opening day rotation. We were joking that the only way ever that the Orioles would leave him unprotected is some kind of clerical error. Remember a couple years ago when the Browns tried to trade a quarterback at the deadline and they couldn't get the paperwork done in time. It would be like somebody... This is like the Jordan Alvarez story about the trade from the what Dodgers. Was, what was that one? When the Astros called the Dodgers asking about a trade, the Astros were sending one of their relievers and wanted Alvarez back. Mm -hmm. On the phone, the Astros GM said, yeah, we want Alvarez the Cuban. And the Dodgers thought that they were referring to a different Alvarez, who was a much higher-ranked prospect in their system, had signed for a lot more money on the uh -huh. international free agent market, and they said, no way. And then the Astros went, no, the other Alvarez. <laughs> and they went, oh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, of course. And then Jordan they traded Alvarez? Jordan. Who, who's that guy? Exactly. He's going to be a nobody, like Fernando Tatis Jr. I've exactly. never heard of this guy. Yeah, the only way they would have slipped through is if they had, like, Grayson Rodriguez with an E. Yeah, they were all they standing in a room up. and everyone went, wait, I thought you were supposed to, <laughs> <Wait>. hold on, <laughs> no. No, wait a second. All right, that didn't happen. He's on the 40-man roster. He's on the 40-man roster. Joey Ortiz, another no-brainer in my mind. The yeah. Orioles' number 17 prospect. He's entering his age 24 season. What a year he had between three different levels of the organization, 284 average, 19 homers in 137 games giving you plus-plus defense at shortstop, at second base, wherever you choose to play him. And he finished the year with AAA Norfolk. So he could, in theory, debut in 2023. Yeah, his defense is MLB ready. And Mike Elias has said that if his bat is playing at the level of his defense, then that's a really good player and one that can rise through the system very quickly. After Mike Elias made that statement, he gets promoted to AAA Norfolk. And then absolutely mashes there. So I think Joey Ortiz, he's a candidate to make the opening day roster. I don't think he will. But even if he starts at AAA Norfolk, if he has the same start to his season as the last few weeks of last year, he should be in the majors within a month. I mean, he was wow. incredible last season at the back end of the year. He's a little bit older. His defense is already MLB ready. Again, this is a nice scenario for the Orioles where you're adding a prospect to the 40-man roster, but it's one that could realistically make an impact at the big league level this year. And remember, he was a 
pick in the 2019 draft where the Orioles have already had two guys debut. They've already had Adley Rutschman and Gunnar Henderson, their first two picks in that draft. If Jory Ortiz hits the big leagues at some point in 2023, you're already way, or sorry, not uh, Adley Rutschman, Gunnar Henderson, and Kyle Stowers. Three picks, correct? And that from that 2020, 2019 yeah. draft. Yep. So if Joey Ortiz debuts, that would, would be, be the fourth. Four. four guys from that 2019 draft. It's incredibly rare, I just want to say, that any draft class gets four guys to the big leagues on one single team. If you get two, you're that's, thrilled. That's huge. And the Orioles may have gotten two superstars yeah. in Adley and Gunner. So, wow, that would be incredible. Yeah, not expecting massive things from Joey Ortiz this year, but if he comes up to the bigs, turns into a good utility player with some decent pop and solid defense across the infield, it's a very valuable player. Drew Rahm, in my mind, another no-brainer for the Orioles to protect. 23 years old. It's Honestly, you forget he's only 23 because he's been in the organization longer than any of these guys. He was drafted before Michael Elias took over in 2018. The Orioles' number 19 prospect. He made it all the way up to AAA. Now, his numbers are not eye-popping. His ERA was a 4-4-3. He did have a lot of strikeouts, almost 11 strikeouts per nine in 26 games and 120 innings. But I think that he represents another perhaps higher floor, lower ceiling guy. He doesn't have velocity that's going to hit the mid to upper 90s, but he is fairly crafty. And I think that he can, if he continues to hone his pitches, we could see him in the bigs. Yeah, so. numbers weren't eye-popping, like you said, but he's just now entering his age 23 season at AAA Norfolk. And it's impressive that he was even there during his age 22 season, yeah. even if his numbers weren't great. So Drew Rahm, very encouraging stuff. Like you said, he is an example of a prospect where you just hope that the Orioles can win on the margins. He's not one of your top 10 prospect. As you said, he's the number 19 prospect in the system. But if Rahm turns into either a number five starter or a solid long reliever, that's a win. Yeah, That's winning on the margins, and that's finding not a diamond in the rough because he's still your 19th-ranked prospect, but you need those sorts of guys to pan out to have good organizational depth, and that's what Drew Rahm provides. Another pitcher that the Orioles protected, another potential starter, Seth Johnson, 24 years old, the Orioles' number 10 prospect. He was half of the Trey Mancini trade from Houston, had Tommy John in August, and that was part of the reason, part of the, reason the Orioles were able to get him at all in a trade, considering how highly rated he is as a prospect, but his injury, of course, affects things. So the Orioles, we're assuming, will not see him pitch at all in 2023, but another team could still have taken him in the Rule 5 draft and just let him sit maybe on their 26-man roster the entire year. Yes, you're, you're carrying kind of dead weight, so to speak, in taking an injured player, but it's just not worth the risk of losing this guy. Now, Seth Johnson would have been selected yeah, because you would have selected him and done exactly what the Orioles are going to do, which is just put him on the injured list at the yeah. beginning of the season. That's all they're going to do, and he won't be a factor, really, on the 40-man roster once you get to the year. Yeah. But another team absolutely would have taken Seth Johnson. We've heard from both Rockabaco and Steve Molesky. They've said that teams around the league were really impressed that the Orioles were able to get Seth Johnson in this trade. Teams around the league apparently loved Johnson. They were making calls trying to get him throughout the year before Baltimore eventually got him. So this was a no-brainer as well. The upside is way too high despite the injury. And the only 
I think you could say pure reliever as of right now, could still have some starter upside that was protected, was Noah DeNoyer. Entering his 20, age 25 season, had a 2.89 ERA with a whopping 12.4 strikeouts per nine and a whip under one in 21 games. Five of those were starts uh, between the Florida Complex League while rehabbing Aberdeen and Bowie. He also pitched in the Arizona Fall League, looked very good, 4.50 ERA. Again, not incredibly terrific ERA, but was past the eye test, certainly. Uh, and one guy who I think that we see some similarities between Noah DeNoyer and some a reliever that was protected last year. He may not have the upside of a Felix Bautista, but somebody who maybe f- was flying under the radar, other teams were probably interested, and it's worth protecting him as of right now. Yeah, I think DeNoyer this year flew up a little bit. I mean, Felix Bautista kind of did a similar thing. As you mentioned, his last year in the minors, Felix Bautista flew up the system. His strikeout numbers were eye-popping. Denoyer's numbers, not as good as Felix Bautista, doesn't have the same upside, like you said, but still, 99 strikeouts in just over 70 innings is really good, and I don't think he's going to be a starter. He could maybe be a number five starter, a spot starter here and there. I think he probably, again, best profiles as a long man out of the bullpen, but the strikeout numbers are great. He'll probably start in Bowie next year, if I had to guess, but I think it'll probably be a quick promotion from Bowie to Norfolk if he continues to pitch well. Somewhere in between, I would say, a Felix Bautista who was protected last year and a Logan Gillespie. Yeah. A shocker that was protected last year. And he's, Denoyer's probably right in between them. Not as as high an upside as Bautista, probably, you know, better surface level numbers than Logan Gillespie. Yeah, better numbers than Gillespie, but... Gillespie was protected because he was just a pure stuff guy. Right. I don't know if the Orioles view DeNoyer as a pure stuff guy. I don't know if his stuff is as good as Gillespie's, but it's still very good. So they left a lot of guys unprotected, which is what you have to do. And you have to, you know, take your risks and hope that other teams don't take guys from your organization in the Rule 5 draft. Were there any shockers, outright shockers to you, Brendan, that the Orioles did not protect? I really don't think so. I mean, there were some names that I thought had a chance of being protected. Maverick Handley, catcher, one name that I thought had an outside chance entering his age 25 season, but he didn't make it to AAA Norfolk, which is discouraging. A 769 OPS with Bowie in 78 games, 11 homers. I don't know if another organization would take a catcher who hasn't made it to AAA yet, so it's possible that the Orioles just kind of assumed they wouldn't lose Maverick Hanley if they didn't protect him, and they're just kind of okay with taking that risk. Robert Newstrom is another good name. We were much more surprised when he wasn't protected last year than him not being protected this year. Hasn't put up fantastic numbers in AAA. His numbers actually got a little bit worse at Norfolk this year than they were in the previous season. Not a shocker there, but he's been pretty good at AAA for a decent sample size now. Maybe another team would take him if they just need depth in their outfield, but it was probably more likely another team would have taken him last year. Yeah. For Handley, like you said, catchers are very rarely taken in the Rule 5 draft, and especially if they're not hitting AAA. So to have a 236 average, 769 OPS, fine numbers, but those were put up at AA. For a guy who's entering his age 25 season, that's just not enough for a team to say, we think we can keep this guy on our 40 man, or on our 26-man roster for the entire 2023 season. So 
the Orioles are taking their bet that he will not be selected in the Rule 5 draft. And then Newstrom, I think either the Orioles last year were okay with him being selected by another team and leaving the organization in the Rule 5 draft, or they were, you know, didn't think he was going to get taken by any team. So if he wasn't going to get taken last year, then he probably would not have gotten taken this year because his numbers, like you said, dipped across the board, really only improved in stolen bases, which is an underrated aspect of his game. He did have close to 20 stolen bases this year, but his average went down, his homers went down, his OPS went down. So if he wasn't going to get taken last year and the Orioles thought maybe he, you know, he wasn't going to get selected by another team, then he probably wasn't going to get taken this year. Definitely he, wasn't going to get taken. He's a pretty good triple-A player at this point, just not really sure what his major league upside looks like right now. Yeah, and like you said about Yusniel Diaz, he got leapfrogged by some other, you know, outfielder-type prospects that the Orioles had in 2022. I mean, we saw Kyle Stowers didn't start the year, you know, or wasn't in AAA for as long in 2021, but he got the call up because he had a much better year than Robert Newstrom. So right. he leapfrogged him to the big leagues. A couple other guys, bigger names that the Orioles left unprotected. Adam Hall, who we were surprised last year that the Orioles did not protect. And he took some steps back as well this past year. Again, injuries have really hampered his career. He did hit 270, but he had only one homer and a 713 OPS. Speed is a big aspect of his game. He had 17 stolen bases, but he played only 61 games. And he was the Orioles' number 15 prospect a year ago. You can't find him in the top 30 this year. It's been a lot of injuries, and it's been a lack of developing power that have kept Adam Hall from being in the top 30 and being protected. Yeah, probably a case of the organization viewing Adam Hall differently than writers and scouts yeah. from outside tend to view Adam Hall because the upside is there. I haven't given up on Adam Hall. I mean, he's still only entering his age 24 season, did get up to Norfolk last year. So maybe we see something if he can put a healthy season together, then maybe the upside is still there for Adam Hall. But again... Kind of like Yusniel Diaz, where, yeah, the theoretical upside is there, but there's just been so many injuries that it's hard to see a path to some quality play. One other name that I did want to mention, actually two, Zach Peek and Kyle Brnovich. Brnovich. There was no vowel there that should be for Kyle Brnovich's name. The it always looks like a typo. B-R-N for the first three letters. Uh, for Zach Peek, entering his age 25 season, now, he put up good numbers, 3.57 ERA, eight strikeouts per nine, but only 11 starts in Bowie because he also needed Tommy John surgery. He was one of the pieces of the Dylan Bundy trade, one of the four guys in that trade. He got Tommy John in August, so he's knocked out through 2023, we're assuming, similar to Seth Johnson. And the question was, how many guys with Tommy John? How many you know, non-playing players could the Orioles protect? from the Rule 5 draft here, and Zach Peake didn't really show enough, I don't think, wasn't as highly rated a prospect to be protected and to keep him on your roster throughout his rehab process. Neither of these guys are as good as Seth Johnson, and they aren't particularly close to the upside of Seth Johnson. So, like you said, you're already keeping Johnson after Tommy John surgery. Yeah, You're kind of biting the bullet with him on the 40-man roster, until you can put him on the injured list. You can't really afford to do that as much with two guys who are not in your top 30, don't quite have the upside. 
I know that this is how the Orioles got Tyler Wells as somebody who had a major injury and then you're able to get him, stash him for a little while, and then you're able to to pitch him pretty much right away once he's in your organization after being hurt in the one that you got him from. You just can't really afford to do that with two guys that don't have the upside. I will say, though, Wells was not a pure stash. He was ready to pitch well because he had Tommy John the year before right so peak having Tommy John this past August same with Seth Johnson means that they are going to provide nothing in theory in 2023 I mean maybe they'll come back and pitch a few innings at the very end of the season but they're pretty much knocked out through the year with Tyler Wells he did miss an entire year with Tommy John then he was taken in the rule five draft Uh, Kyle Brnovich also undergoing Tommy John, but his Tommy John was much earlier in the season. So in theory, he could maybe join. Yeah, he got it in May. Yeah. So maybe he could come back mid-season, maybe at the tail end of the year, get a couple months in, uh, put up good numbers as well. Three three two ERA, almost 12 strikeouts per nine in 23 games and 19 starts in 2021. And he was pitching with Norfolk at the start of the 2022 season when he had his Tommy John. So I thought maybe there was a possibility that they would take Brinovich, somebody who was another guy from the Dylan Bundy trade. So one of their acquired players entering his age 25 season looked more ready to contribute. So, you know, he could have come back this year and maybe he could have been on your big league team in 2023. I will say though, in in terms of other teams selecting Peak or Brinovich, if you're selecting a player in the Rule 5 draft, they have to be at the Major League level for that year that you select them. Yeah. So, if you were taking Peek or Brinovich, oftentimes the issue with selecting a player in the Rule 5 draft who hasn't made it up to AAA is that you don't really think they're Major League ready. So, you could theoretically take Peek or Brinovich and select them, put them on the injured list, not need them to pitch at the Major League level, even though they're technically the major league level at that point and it's almost kind of a workaround from selecting a guy who might not be ready to pitch at the big league level but oh he doesn't have to because he's just rehabbing from injury right so with both of those guys I do think there is still a chance that other teams take these guys because they're out there now we'll see exactly what the landscape looks like with the rest of the guys who were left unprotected by other organizations but I wouldn't be shocked I mean it would be similar to when Zach Pop was selected, I believe, by the Marlins at that point or selected yep. by another team and traded for by the Marlins. So he left the organization that way, and now he is a big league reliever elsewhere. So A good one. A pretty good one, yeah. So maybe the Orioles are okay assuming the risk of leaving these guys unprotected. A couple other names of guys who I don't think will be selected in the Rule 5 draft but were bigger names for Orioles fans. I think some names that Orioles fans have heard before. Uh, Easton Lucas who was part of the Jonathan VR trade. He's entering his age 26 season, a lefty. He just has not shown nearly enough to be protected. Tyler Birch, who was the member coming the other way in the uh, Freddie Galvis trade. He's entering his age 25 season. Andrew Dashbaugh, first baseman in that 2019 draft out of Stanford. Zach Watson, another, what, third or fourth round pick? Fourth round pick out of LSU. In 2019, Really had a very down season for Double A Bowie this past year. Uh, Toby Welk, 
another kind of fan favorite. He came up and hit the ground running with then short season Aberdeen 2019, but he really hasn't been able to stay healthy or productive. So a lot of guys left unprotected. Again, I don't think those guys will necessarily be drafted in the Rule 5 draft, but the Orioles have made their decision on them. Yeah, Cody Roberts, another name entering his age 27 season, did get up to AAA Norfolk for just a handful of games, played well there in the few games that he played, seven games, nine hits, three extra base hits, had a fine season, but he's just kind of older and hasn't flashed a ton of potential, so the Orioles just probably fine with losing him if that's even really a possibility. Yeah, and then one other name I do want to mention, Garrett Stallings, who came back via trade a couple years ago. Really down year for Garrett Stallings. 628 ERA in 26 games, 22 of them starts for AA Bowie. Doesn't look like he could be long for this organization if he continues to put up those kind of stats. Yeah, was a top 30 prospect at one point yeah. and was the centerpiece of that trade from the Angels, but then... It, Jose Iglesias, right? And then it kind of seems like the prize of that trade was the unknown international prospect of Gene Pinto. Yeah. It seems like Pinto is kind of turned into the better pitcher of the two. Definitely. All right, non-tender deadline is Friday. The Orioles have to decide whether they are going to tender all of these guys' contracts. So that doesn't mean they necessarily have to agree on a number uh, via arbitration and avoid arbitration by this deadline. It just means, do we want to keep this guy in the organization or not? The Orioles have six players who are arbitration eligible, and they have to decide whether they're going to tender them a contract. Anthony Santander, Austin Voth, Cedric Mullins, Austin Hayes, Dylan Tate, Jorge Mateo. I look at all six of those guys, Brendan. I don't see any non-tender candidates. No, I don't think there's really even any question no. with any of them. Anthony Santander is the one who's probably going to make the most money. He's at a projected $7.5 million. Mike Elias said in an interview what, a week ago at this point that he was excited to have Anthony Santander on the team for at least the next two years. So he's not going anywhere. Yeah. Mike Elias assured us that he was not. The rest of the guys that are arbitration eligible just aren't making enough money to let go. I mean, are you not going to pay Cedric Mullins four and a half million dollars? <laughs> yeah. Like everybody else is staying. Yeah, I, I don't see them non-tendering Austin Voth, who's projected to make two million given what he gave no. you during the year. I mean, maybe, but he was so clutch as a pinch starter and out of the bullpen that I think he's definitely worth that amount of money. I'd say so. I mean, maybe the Orioles just think that they can do the same thing with right. Austin Voth and just kind of claim somebody off of waivers and turn them into a good pitcher because the Orioles have been able to do that. Yeah. So maybe they just go, hey, we don't need to pay Austin Voth $2 million when we can just claim somebody for less than that and do the same thing. But I don't know why you wouldn't. No, that that's $2 million is not a lot of money. Yeah. And these numbers are projected via MLB trade rumors.com. Jorge Mateo, 1.8 million. Duh. Easy. Absolutely. Uh, Dylan Tate, 1.5. Easy. He had a great year last year. Again, not, not as many high leverage situations, but was a very good reliever for them. Austin Hayes, 3.1 million. I know Easy. he had a down second half, but he still gave you a 2.3 baseball reference war. Yeah. You're going to get 3.1 million is just nothing Absolutely. for a good player. So they all six guys are giving you much more than you would be paying them, Yeah, I think. So I don't think there's going to be much drama with the non-tender deadline. Exactly how much these guys get, we'll see. That That is TBD. 
but all five or all six rather should be in the organization. Yeah, Randall on YouTube asking why keep Mateo if the Orioles are looking for a shortstop. Even if you're looking for an upgraded shortstop, even if you sign Dansby Sponson or Carlos Correa to however many millions of dollars, $1.8 million for Jorge Mateo is nothing. Yes. I would pay $1.8 million to Mateo if he was only a utility player, if he played 80 games this year. And that was his role of just coming in, playing good defensive shortstop or occasionally a second base or a third base where you need him. It's $1.8 million. That's just not a lot of money. I mean, I don't have $1.8 million to spend, but you know, I will contribute 10, (laughs) $10, maybe 15. Yeah. Ew. Maybe seventeen fifty. Seventeen fifty sounds fair. Yeah, but I that's can do that. A couple burritos at Chipotle. So right. I don't know if I can give that up. All right, boy, that was a lot of roster moves to talk about. It really was. Um, we have a conversation to be had next week, Brendan. Assuming there's no breaking news that we have to talk about and divert our plans because of. I think next week we're going to talk about Adley Rutschman and whether or not. You should uh, look to signing him to an extension this offseason. You should. End of podcast. All right. Thanks. That's, that, that's it. Yeah. How much? There, I think it's a very fascinating conversation. How many years? How much money? What is he worth? And is now the right time to do it, I yeah. think, is the biggest piece of that conversation. Yeah. So all, all fascinating discussions to be had. And I think tied in with that Adley Rutschman conversation is a Gunnar Henderson conversation, whether you should look to extend... Your young shortstop. Yeah. Fascinating. I think, judging from what I've seen on on Orioles Twitter, on the interwebs during free agency, I think Orioles fans are just kind of nervous about big contracts. I know that these prospects are coming with huge potential to the major leagues, but you don't know if these guys are going to be bona fide stars. And it seems like anytime we talk about big money, there's at least some portion of the fan base that says, well, let's just hold on to the prospects and just see how they do. Big money is okay if the player is really good. I know the Chris Davis contract did not work out as planned, but the Orioles should still spend money. Yeah. Saw a comment as well on YouTube as we are live about if the Orioles try to sign any free agents, who would be the guys you would remove from the 40-man roster? And maybe the Orioles want to go into the Rule 5 draft with two open spots on their 40-man roster and leave themselves the possibility of taking two guys because right now they have 39. Uh, look, Just looking at the 40-man roster, I think Yenny or Cano could be a possibility to be outrighted. Uh, didn't have great numbers, was part of a, a trade midseason, came over, but really hasn't flashed a whole lot, and he's one of the older guys, older relievers in that bullpen. Other than that, I don't see too many guys that the Orioles would be really willing to part with or excited to part quick maybe mark colesbury the other catcher on the 40-man roster with adley rutschman if they decide to sign a catcher uh then that would kind of make colesbury you know op- his his role on this team kind of obsolete yeah other pitchers that i'm kind of looking at just fringe guys chris valamont yeah bruce zimmerman i'm not really sure who else i mean maybe daz cameron but you just claimed him right so you want to at least give him a try well they they don't have to because they did the same yeah. thing with Lucius Fox. Remember, they had him on their 40-man for a week. Daz Cameron and Jake Cave, two other guys that they've just brought into the organization that they could very well just part with. Yeah. I mean, Daz Cameron a little bit younger, so maybe you give Cameron a little bit longer of a leash than you would give a Jake Cave who's 30. So who knows? I think there are a good amount of 
fringe guys on the 40-man roster that as we see the Orioles start to make some free agent signings, maybe some trades or a Rule 5 draft selection, there's some guys that we could realistically see go off this 40-man. Yeah, it's, it's. I don't think it'll be too difficult a conversation to have. No. All right, that just about does it for our podcast today. At Brendan Morty is Brendan's Twitter handle. I am at Paul Mancano. Of course, we are live on YouTube and on Facebook every Wednesday at 11 a.m. And then our podcast goes up on all of the sound audio platforms shortly thereafter. Thanks to Amy Jennings, our producer today. We will be back next week to have our Adley Rutschman extension conversation. We'll see you then.